You're listening to the Autism Weekly Podcast. Each week, we share community voices and bring light to stories that increase awareness, acceptance, equity, access, and inclusion. If you haven't already, subscribe to join the Autism Weekly family. I'm your host, Jeff Skabitsky. This week, we welcome professor and author Dr. Hank Schlinger to the podcast to talk with us about how building self-esteem plays a role in living a happy and healthy life. Dr. Schlinger is the author of the book, How to Build Good Behavior and Self-Esteem in Children, which is an excellent resource for both parents of kids on the spectrum, as well as the clinicians that help those children. Thanks for joining us, Dr. Hank. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much, Jeff. Nice to be with you. Well, this is such a hot topic right now. I feel like every time I have these conversations, and it might just be because our society right now is a tough one to build self-esteem in, Um, I think it's a a timely topic for us to be discussing. But before we go there, is that what I've learned is that most people in our field got here for a reason, is that there was something that connected us to the behavioral work, the study of of humans, to autism in general. But do you have that wow moment or do you have that story of, you know, what brought you to really focusing in on this? Oh, yes, I do have a story. Um, When I I was an undergrad many years ago, I won't tell you how many years ago, but many years ago, um, I was sort of drifting through college, you know, making C's and D's, no no real direction, no major. I had been in three years as an undergrad, um, mostly playing music. And, you know, I was in college because my parents, you know, that was what what I was supposed to do. Um, And... um, and I actually took an, an intro psych class that was taught by uh, a behaviorist at the time. And at the time, I was into Freudian psychology, and I and and she tur- she so turned me off from behaviorism, or what 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 you know what I took to be behaviorism at the time. Um, and I was living in a duplex, and um, uh, it, it became the second half of the duplex became vacant, and a, and a young attractive woman moved in next door to me. Uh, this was in Denton, Texas. I was, this was at North Texas State University, which is now called the University of North Texas. Um, and so she moved in next to me and we began talking and and I, and I said, well, you know, what are you doing here? She's like, well, I moved up to Denton from Dallas, which is about 40 miles to the south, to study with uh, this psychology professor named Don Whaley. And she said, um, in fact, uh, I'm taking a, a, a summer class with him, an abnormal psychology class, and you should really take it. Um, and she was a very attractive young woman, and so um, she, it didn't take long for her to talk me into that. Uh, and then I realized that the summer class was five weeks, 7.30 in the morning, um, which for a musician was, was not a very uh, ideal time. Nevertheless, the first day I walk into the class, and, and in walks this bigger-than-life figure, long beard, long hair, maybe that gives you some idea of when it was, um, with very, very charismatic, um, magnetic personality. And he said, um, in this class, this five-week class, I will give you a choice. You can write a 40-page paper, or you can work with an autistic child an hour a day. Um, well, I had no idea what an autistic child was, which also may give you a clue as to when this was. Uh, but I knew I didn't want to write a 40-page paper. So um, the very next day, 
I found myself sitting in front of a child um, that was as foreign to me as any human being I'd ever seen. I, I just had no idea that such a, such a, a, a person existed. Um, uh, the kid that I that I began working with or training with was was nonverbal, um, a lot of uh, stereotype behavior, um, of course, some some acting out behavior, some tantruming, some self injurious behavior, um, uh, and echolalia. And I I had no idea what echolalia was. And so here I am as an undergrad sitting in front of this kid one on one, and I my mind was blown. Um, and after after you know a few weeks, I began to see that what I was trained to do was actually making noticeable changes in this kid's behavior for the better, uh, and that blew me away even more. Uh, and that's why I'm here today talking to you. <laughs> I mean, in in short order. Yeah, and, and it sounds like just even listening to that story is that he probably impacted you in in the same way. Like you said, you know, I felt like oh, I could see changes. But he was probably changing you in the same way. He was he was changing the trajectory of your life and helping you to kind of see different ways, perspectives, and which I think is hard, but it goes to this self-esteem issue. And this that's the one piece that I, I think is a big variable within treatment right now, within the way that we are adjusting to interactions in society, is how do we maintain a good, healthy view of ourselves right. the process. And I'd love for you just to give our, our audience the, just the, you know, the background of you know, what, what exactly is self-esteem, because I think that it's, it's a very broad definition. And why is it important for all of us, not just autistics, but why is it important for everybody to have healthy self-esteem? Well, I'm not sure about this answer to the second part of the question. Uh, the first part of the question, I, I approach everything um, including um, how we define terms. I approach that from a radical behavioral perspective. Um, so there is no such thing as self-esteem. There is simply a verbal response self-esteem. Like, like, so the way that I view it is, under what circumstances would you be likely to say that, uh, that someone else or yourself has self-esteem? Usually we would do this with someone else. So if you, if, if it, it, you know, like as I interact with you, I might observe your behavior, how you talk about yourself, how you present yourself, and I might say, I think Jeff has has pretty good self-esteem, pretty positive self-esteem. On the other hand, if you were kind of, you know, slovenly and your hair wasn't combed and and you looked down all the time and you spoke quietly and and you and you and you maybe talked about yourself in negative ways, then I might say, well, Jeff doesn't have very good self-esteem. So self-esteem itself is just a, is just a term or a verbal response that we make. And the question is, what would a, what would a child, for example, what kinds of behaviors would a child have to engage in for other people to say she has high self-esteem or good self-esteem? And then once you answer that question, then um, you would proceed to teach those behaviors. Um, and so if, if you if you look at it that way, I think a lot of the behaviors that we would um, identify as as being what we would call self-esteem have to do with how we talk about ourselves. Um, you know, the other things I mentioned, how you dress, those, I mean, those are some small things, but mostly it's how we talk about ourselves. Uh, so if someone asks you about yourself and, and you talk about yourself in positive ways and confident ways, 
then we would say you have good self-esteem. If you talk about yourself in negative ways or, or not so confident ways, then we might say you have low or weak self-esteem. And then we would proceed if we wanted to, to, to try and change those behaviors. So that, that's kind of how, how I approach it in the book. And then, and then of course the book is designed to teach behaviors that we would call or label as self-esteem if a child engaged in them. Yeah. And I mean, if you're, if you're intentionally teaching those behaviors is that there has to be an inherent social value to presenting oneself in a certain way. Right. So, I mean, that's, that's, I guess what I'm trying to really understand is that if I went through my life with low self-esteem, what would be the behavioral components? Would I be withdrawing? Would I be scared to put myself out there? Would I be less willing to provide responses? I mean, what would be the behavioral indicators of my esteem being not where it is going to benefit me? Well, again, um, that depends upon other people and, and how they respond to you and how, how what they would say about you. Um, so, it, 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 I mean, I, I guess what I'm saying is I don't think there's a specific set of behaviors that universally we would call self, you know, good self-esteem. Um, we, we might be able to come up with 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 a, with a, a loose grouping of, of behaviors. But in general, I would say how we talk about ourselves, not only to others, but to ourselves. So if I walk through my, my daily world and I say things like, you know, I, I can't do this. I'm just I'm not good enough. I don't I'm not smart enough. You know, I, 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 I don't feel I don't feel comfortable you know, doing this. I don't like myself when I do this. If I talk to myself like that, then we might be likely to say that that my self-esteem is not so good. Um, so then the question would be, what kinds of contingencies, what kinds of in, how could we change the, my environment to change those behaviors, to 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 sort of decrease those kinds of negative self-talking behaviors and increase more positive ones? And, you know, I think that part of that is um, you, you don't you, you, you wouldn't want to target just the, the verbal behaviors. You don't want just someone to say good things about themselves because we know people who talk really highly about themselves, but it doesn't match their behavior. So you'd also want to have to teach the behaviors that would lead them to look at their behaviors and go, hey, I did a good job. I, I can do this. You know, I'm pretty good at that. Um, mm -hmm. So that, I guess that's kind of the general approach that I that I would take. Yeah, and I mean, all of that sounds like it, it probably, when I look at the treatment end of this, all of those are skills that probably should be inherently built into almost every single treatment pro protocol that you're building, is that you want somebody to feel successful yes. and to demonstrate the behaviors that might coincide with that so that they can continue to practice yeah. these successful activities. So yes. with a child who is is um, identifies autistic and with the teaching protocols that are out there, it's oftentimes it's giving that repetition, that chance for success, the, the ability to be able to contact, but they're contacting failure at the same time. So what's different in the teaching strategies with somebody who's autistic that you might have to be more intentional in building self-esteem? Right. Well, I think it depends on, um, you know, when I first started working with with kids diagnosed with autism, there was no autism spectrum diagnosis. These were just these were what we would call now classic autism, you know, uh, mute or echolalic, um, almost no functional skills, etc. 
Um, nowadays, the spectrum includes such a, a wide variety of, of individuals um, that it would be it's difficult to answer your question because you know like I hear people talk about high functioning autism or 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 I'll see somebody and they'll say well do you know she's autistic I'm like no I couldn't I couldn't tell why how is she autistic you know she's in high school she's you know she's successful she's whatever so it depends on on the kid um, but so for 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 a kid diagnosed with autism or a person diagnosed with autism who's who's verbal then obviously a critical part of the treatment would be to make sure that you talk in positive ways about their behavior such that they can model that and then be reinforced for talking about themselves in the same way. Kids who are, are less verbal or nonverbal, obviously you can't target, you know, it's hard to target those kinds of self-verbal, those self-tacting or self-verbal behaviors. Um, one of the things that 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 I uh, that I think um, is valuable about behavior analysis is that we really do um, put a premium on success. Um, we don't build failure into our programs. Now, that's not to say that there aren't, you know, trials or instances where, you know, reinforcement's not delivered for whatever reason, but but we build success into the program. So, you know, to me, behavior analysis builds self-esteem just by virtue of it being programmed, if it's programmed well, because there's a, it's a rich schedule of, reinfo of positive reinforcement. Now, I will say one thing. Positive reinforcement alone is not sufficient to build self-esteem. Uh, and so because positive reinforcement doesn't mean good reinforcement. It just means some stimulus or some consequence is added following a response. So if you take an example of a child in a grocery store who, for example, asks for candy, the parent says no. The child then starts throwing a tantrum, screaming, crying. And the parent then gives the candy. And then, of course, the next time they're in the store, the child engages in the same behavior. Well, the candy is a positive reinforcer for tantruming behavior. But does the child enjoy doing what, she, what he or she's doing? Do they feel good about themselves doing that? Of course not. You know, the, the parent, neither the parent nor the child feels good about that, even though the behavior has been re positively reinforced. So I, I think part of it depends not just on using positive reinforcement, but it depends on the behaviors that we choose to positively reinforce. Absolutely. And, and just, just I, I mean, I know you, you want to ask a, another question, but just one of the points of my book is that starting early in life, no matter whether a child is, is you know, diagnosed as autistic or, or not, parents should try to be aware of the behaviors they want to see in their kids and make sure they positively reinforce them with attention, with praise, with access to privileges or other things and also talk to them in positive ways at the same time like not just good boy right but wow you 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 put that puzzle together all by yourself that's great you you managed to find all those pieces or something like that mm -hmm. and then, because we know that kids talk to themselves in the way that parents talk to them so after that the kid says i i, I put that puzzle together all by myself you know i found all the right you know um, so that's that's kind of I think that's that's sort of how I would get from from that to the self-esteem component. No, absolutely. And I mean, when you when you describe each one of those steps, it and I think you said it, it's not a, it's not a parenting style just for children with autism. I mean, this is for every single child out there. Is that's that right. You want to you want to recognize the right things. 
so that the child understands that, hey, this is what is gaining attention. This is yeah. what gives me access to privilege. This is what gives me all these wonderful things I'm looking for in my life. And, and then makes me feel good. Yeah. And that's and that's the piece when when I'm looking at this and if I'm talking to a group of, of parents or a group of clinicians and we're saying, you know, there are some core behaviors that I really want to push out that I think are going to build more of that independence, that that feeling of I can be self-sufficient, I can manage this situation. And if I were to pick one right now, I might choose uh, initiating a, a social interaction or initiating an activity. Yes. What would that look like if I were to be intentional and in trying to make sure that I'm capturing every single bit of that so that every time that child's engaging or putting in the effort that I am giving them a chance to build this as a new behavior in their repertoire, which I think would lead to quote yes. unquote self-esteem. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, um, as a parent yourself, and I'm a parent, and I think I think one of the most difficult things about being a parent is being vigilant and observant about your kid's behavior. Um, and you know, I, I've been doing this for a long time. Um, working with kids with autism trained me for when I had my own kid, because when I sat in front of an autistic child one on one for the four or five years that I did that, I was trained to 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 be ready to identify any behavior that that I could positively reinforce. And so I had to watch the kid's behavior constantly during the time I was working with him or her. So when I became a parent, it was just automatic for me. I just I observe, you know, now I don't do it 100 percent of the time, but I do it as I do it a lot. And and, this, and if I see a behavior that I like uh, now, he's almost 12 now, so I don't do it as much as I used to because he's his behavior is now pretty much the way I like it. But when he was young, when I saw something that I liked, I didn't just, you know, thank my lucky stars that he did that. You know, I made sure I acknowledged it with him. And and it wasn't always like, you know, good boy, you did a, you know, sometimes it was just paying attention to him, just talking to him. You know, like the parent in the grocery store. You go into the grocery store with your kid, your kid's walking by your side nicely and quietly, and you're reading your list and looking for food, but how would you like your kid to behave? Well, you'd like her to walk by your side nicely and quietly, maybe. So instead of, you know, every once in a while, maybe you should just turn to her and say, oh, you know, would you like to help me here? Or what's next on our list? Or what do you, you know, you don't have to praise them all the time, just interact with them. But you know what happens, the parent's busy doing other things. And then all of a sudden the child does something, you know, that is not what the parent wants. Bam, the parent's right on it. And... So what does the kid learn? The kid learns, well, if I want my parents' attention, I mean, they don't say this to themselves, but this is, it appears as if they do, then they learn to, you know, engage in some acting out behaviors, you know, whining, crying, complaining, you know, whatever. The parent could have avoided that completely. Uh, it's hard. It's really difficult. That's one of the main things I do in my book, which is to try and constantly remind parents to be on the lookout for good behavior, uh, and when you see it, um, try to attend to it in some way. Right. And and as parents, is that we're not we're not going to be 100% on the ball. But say we are 50% on the ball. <laughs> I mean, is that is that good enough? I mean, it, is it 
as long as we're intentional about specific behaviors that, you know, like this is what I'd really love to see my child doing in this particular uh, environment. So yes. I'm going to focus on this one behavior today, but I'll catch it 90% of the time. Is that yeah. is that going to is that really going to modify what you're hoping to do? I mean, is this what we need to really enforce parents and the parent education part of, you know, there there are things that you can do that are pretty natural yeah. as long as you have your eyes open to the situation. Yes, that, I think so. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, yes, I, I think so. I, I think so. Definitely. Um, I, you know. I, uh, we, we, we grew up in a culture where we have this kind of, I call it a naive philosophy. And our naive philosophy is that behavior originates within the individual. So like, you know, when, when my son was younger, people would come over and they would say, oh, he's so well behaved, you're so lucky. I'm like, no, it's not a matter of luck, you know? But a lot of parents think it's the luck of the draw. Sometimes you get a good kid, sometimes you get a bad kid. Maybe it's genetic, maybe it's, you know, in the stars, whatever. And I'm like, no, that's not how it works. You know, you you get a neutral kid and it's up to you to build the good behavior. It doesn't come from someplace else. Um, and that also means that that there's a responsibility, you know, and but it's not easy because, you know, parents are, are busy. They Sometimes they, they work two jobs. Sometimes there's a single parent. Sometimes both parents work. Um, sometimes there's more than one kid in the house. Um, there's a lot of things that are demanding your attention, um, and it, it's a really hard job. I mean, I can't think of a more difficult job, especially when you look at, at what your final product is. Like, you know, I ask parents, what, 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 what is your goal with, with this child that you just had? Well, see, my goal is to raise an independent, productive, happy, healthy kid. And so then you say, well, what does it mean to be independent? What does it mean to be productive? What does it mean to be happy? And you I try to identify some of the behaviors that you would call independent, productive, happy. And then you try to identify them, notice them when they occur and make sure that you uh, attend to them or something, you know. So and it, when you when you do walk that with the parents and walk that path and help them define it, it probably is a light bulb moment because you look at the macro level of this is that if I had my child and, and the the one in the grocery store that you framed for us so well that was getting attention solely for some of those behaviors that may be more disruptive grabbing something and throwing it in the cart that shouldn't be there or throwing the tantrum eventually despite that momentary reinforcement and that behavior going up and them starting to realize i can change my parents behavior just by being disruptive or causing a scene but in the long run the macro level is that that doesn't work with the rest of society. And it's not something that's gonna be effective for them, which when they start to contact failure more and more often with these learned behaviors, that's where I'd see, I guess, the the term of self-esteem start to really come into place is that failure has to reduce somebody's feeling of confidence, success, and self-appreciation. Well, yes, and then you see that in families where kids can't do anything right. You know, I mean, if you, you you see kids who have been raised in families where there's they just can't do anything right. They can't do anything well enough. Um, and then you see how they feel about themselves, how they talk about themselves. That's what they say. I, I, I tried, but I just couldn't do it. I couldn't do it well enough. I couldn't do it good enough. I can't quite get it. Um, and, you know, 
that they're not born that way. I mean, that's something that's built into them, not intentionally. Parents don't do these things intentionally, um, but 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 they happen nonetheless. Um, and the other thing I wanted to point out is it's not just failure, but a, let's say let's go back to that example: a kid who who learns to to get attention from the parents uh, or other things, you know, tangibles or activities. You know, okay, just okay, just 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 calm down. You can go outside and play, right? You know, um, so they get to go outside and play for you know for screaming and crying or something. They will try those behaviors on other people, and they won't work with some people, but they will work with other people, and they'll work often enough that they will probably be maintained because it's on some kind of you know schedule of reinforcement. But they're not going to feel good about themselves because, and no one will feel good about them, right? People do not like people like that. Um, when you're in the store and you see or hear a kid doing that, you don't like that kid. You're like, what's wrong with that kid? I don't like this. Uh, and so, so it's the failure can also lead to that, but also finding, you know, those behaviors will find reinforcement somewhere. Yeah. You know, and they'll find and it I would imagine that negative social response that you might be getting from the world around you and even if you're getting that short-term gain is that that's got to come back if you're aware of those social responses is that you start to potentially feel like a, you're outside of the norm of how society is interacting and it's it's not the healthy outside right. it's the it's the right. maladaptive it, it this doesn't work for the rest of the world around me and this is something that it's going to cause more influence and in negative relationships than good ones so I, yes. I think i hear what you're saying and but it, it is hard so when you're talking with families and in your book as you're kind of going through that process it looks like you're trying to define with them you know, what is the definition of of independent success? What is good esteem? How do you define that for yourself and for your child and your family? But is that the first step of actually trying to understand a family's goals is looking at, you know, what is healthy, what is safe and what is happy for us right now? Well, generally not, because generally families won't won't come to you or parents won't come to you unless there's a problem. Um, and so the goal then doesn't become some long-term, you know, generic goal of happiness or healthiness. The goal becomes a short-term goal of fixing a, a behavioral problem. Um, one of the things that I, as I mentioned, that I try to do throughout the book is to is to try. And you know, I realize that reading a book isn't going to change a lot of behavior. Um, I try to I, I tried to write the book to encourage that. Like I have fill in the blanks so the parents so that people who read it have to fill in blanks. It's a little bit of program instruction. There are quizzes at the end of each chapter that the, that the parents or others, you know, can can look at if they can't remember the answer. They go back to the chapter. I give a lot of 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 examples to hopefully, you know, hit a range of examples that apply to everyone. Um, but having done that, I realized that um, parents are already trained. They're trained by their parents. Um, and sometimes to break that cycle of training, which is sometimes not not very you know uh, productive, it takes more than a book. But I hope the book that might be at least a first step. And then of course, parents of kids diagnosed with autism, hopefully they are receiving good 
quality parent training from the agency or organization um, that's helping their kids. Um, and that takes me to a whole other issue because I believe that that agencies um, nowadays, at least many of the ones I'm familiar with, that um, that serve families of kids with autism, you know, where you go into a kid's home and you have behavior technicians or, or you know, BCABAs or whatever working with the kid directly. Um, for the last several years, I, I've just really come to, to believe that that that's the wrong model, that people should go into the home and train the parents. Because when you leave, guess what happens? All those contingencies and all that stimulus control that you develop with the kid as a behavioral technician or BCBA, vote, that's gone. Now it's back to the parent. And the parent's calling you like, they were behaving so well when you were here, and now, you know. And so I really believe that, um, that a majority of the services should be directed towards training parents because mm-hmm. at some point, some point you're going to be gone. Yeah. And it's, the, and it's the parents who are going to be with the kids. And so I, and, and, you know, I know some agencies that, that do that more or less, but I know a lot that don't. Yeah. And, and having that parent engagement, that stakeholder participation, whether it's, it's parents or other family members or community members, yeah. Yep. is that it's you won't you won't be able to carry the skills over across environments unless they are actively involved but i mean you you had a good point earlier in the fact that parents they're starting off with a with a kind of finite amount of time that they can attend to be able to change behavior so it does take its team at points is that you need your yes. babysitter your preschool, your behavior analyst, your RBT, your um, speech therapist, whoever it is that's helping your child, all to be unified in the approach and for the parent to feel confident that they can carry it over. And I I think there needs to be more emphasis on that as well. I, I, I agree with what you're saying there. But as you're looking at it and you're trying to say, okay, you have you have a family situation where the family is trying to learn new behaviors. The child's trying to learn new behaviors. You're trying to figure out what's important, but getting through life itself is sometimes just hard and it's easier just to do. How do you encourage the families to, to take a step back instead of just taking care and doing everything for their child? How do you help them to realize, you know, sometimes it's worth that extra 20 minutes for them to work through something, to build tolerance, to build persistence? Um, well, you know, um, that's hard to do by just talking to a parent. I think that's easier to do in a parent training s- situation, because um, as you were talking, I realized, I mean, this is something you mentioned. You may not may not have realized that, that you mentioned this, but but. I'll put it this way, uh, self-esteem is a two-way street. So not only do you want your kid to have self-esteem, to feel like they can be successful and, and productive, and but you want the parents to feel that way. And I know a lot of parents nowadays don't feel that way. Um, uh, you know, if, if a parent has a child, well, autistic or not, who's constantly acting out, the parent might think, you know, what have I done wrong? You know, how come I can't, you know, I don't feel good about being a parent. You know, I don't like my kids sometimes or something. So if you can, in your parent training, if you can demonstrate with the parent that they can actually do something and be successful and have it change their kids' behavior. The same thing that happened to me when I first started working with autistic kids. 
I mean, I went in as an undergrad. I had no clue what what I was doing or what was going on. But it didn't take long for me to feel pretty good about what I was doing because I saw the changes happening in this child. And I think the same is true for parents. And I think that's a way to build their self-esteem. And I think it builds that that relationship, that loving relationship between the parent and the child. Um, you know, we talk about unconditionally loving kids. Um, and that sounds good, but if your kid is always acting badly and, and is difficult to control and screaming and crying and throwing things all the time, you might say, I love my kid, but it's hard to, it's hard to love that. But if you can do something to get that to change, then, then the door is open for, you know, a little bit of, a little bit of sunshine. So you go, oh yeah, yeah, I love it when she's like that. Oh, and now she can do this. I love it. You know, and then. So I think that, that, that the self-esteem thing is, is, is a two-way street. Um, mm-hmm. And parents, you know, if they're successful and to the degree that they're successful in helping their kids, they're going to feel good about themselves and about their kids, too. Yeah. And, I, and I, you know, and I, the fact that, that you put that out there and that you were able to articulate so well, I think is important. Um, oftentimes, I think that the clinical world forgets about the fact that families need to contact success themselves in, in order to maintain the motivation, in order to maintain the desire, not the desire, but the the ability to put forth the added effort and the response effort to get to where they want to go. And we oftentimes throw out 20, 30 things that we want the family to do. You yep. do that, you're setting yourself up for failure. You have to find those bite-sized successes. And so, right. Well, you would, you would never do that with a kid, right? No. You would never throw 30 things, 30 things at the kid, right? You would, it's one, one, you know, one response, one, one behavior at a time. And then you build on that behavior. And the same with the parent, you know, like you said earlier, you know, pick that one thing, start with one thing, right? Today, you know, now we're going to, you know, what behavior would you like to work on? Okay, we're going to work on this. I want you to, um, uh, I want you to, throughout the day, I want you to, you know, let's come up with a behavioral definition that we all agree on, you know, and then throughout the day, you observe it, write down how many times you observed it, write down, you know, what was going on when, when your child did this, write down what happened afterwards. We'll, you know, we'll look at it tomorrow. We'll, you know, one behavior. No. And I think I think if you can teach them to be successful with one behavior, they're going to feel better and more willing and motivated to. Can we do another one? You know, mm-hmm. can we tackle another? One? Yeah. Yep. And and they'll probably have the capacity. And and I, I mean, I'm going to use the word competence in the, in the fact that it's a skill that they're learning to be able to take on more and more challenging yes. tasks, more challenging behaviors. So with that, with all that being said, I mean, it's, this isn't an easy process and it has lifelong ramifications is that if you start to teach the wrong behaviors early in life and you contact a history of whatever behavior it was working for that child is that it's going to make them far harder to be successful as adults. So when we're talking to parents right now and we're saying, you know, these are the, these are the critical tips that I'd say pause right now and let's let's kind of take this in what are those real critical tips that you'd be giving to a parent just any parent to say all right let's get our framework set again let's let's take a deep breath and reevaluate yeah well the first thing i would say is start young you know start start you know right after your child is born you know even though newborns can't do anything um, or they can't do very much 
it's still important to start then. It's much easier at that point to identify behaviors because there's not a lot of behaviors that they do. So, you know, so start as early as possible, identify behaviors that you like, that, you know, what do you like? Now we're all, we're, we're both, you and I are both assuming that we're talking about normal, healthy parents, right? Um, so what behaviors do you like? Do you want your kid to turn her head to look at you? Do you want her to smile? Do you want her to reach out towards you? Do you want her to, um, you know, whatever, just very early in life. I think really, you know, I mean, most parents, most good parents, most parents respond to those kinds of things early in life. Um, I think things get get a little bit more difficult when kids get older and then when they learn to talk. Um, so walking and talking are the two big, you know, the two big things, because once they start walking, then they're in stuff. They're in your stuff. And, you know, if 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 your child starts walking and he walks over to your very expensive stereo system and starts messing around with stuff, you know, well, how should you react? You know, well, a lot of parents just become dramatic, you know, don't do that, you know, you know. And the, and the kid's like, oh, there's a cartoon here, you know, because it's, it's very dramatic. They like the dramatic. And um, then you find them doing it again. And I thought I told you not to do that. And so that's a that's a good point where you could stop and say, uh, is there another way that I can approach this? You know, can I can I uh, offer an alternative for my child at that moment in time that I can then pay attention to him or her? Um, can I distract them with something else, you know? So, um, so one of the points, as I said, that I make throughout the whole book is, is prevention. I mean, it's really prevention uh, is, and you've alluded to this, prevention is much easier if you can do it from the beginning. It's much easier than, um, than dealing with some behaviors you don't like later on. It, it's not that you can't do them, you can't deal with them. It's just much easier to prevent them in the first place. That's my example of the kid in the grocery store. If your child is being not, you know, is being quiet and walking with you and doing what you want, well, pay attention to her. You know, help her, let her help you. You know, engage with her. I once saw a, a mother in a in a store. She was pushing a cart and she had a newborn in the you know the little first part of the cart. You know, and the baby couldn't have been more than a few weeks old, and she was pushing her cart with this newborn, and she was talking to the newborn. Now, the newborn had no idea what she was saying. You know, she wasn't talking back. But this woman was talk, was moving the cart and talking to her newborn. And I, and I just wanted to go up to her and say, that's so great. You know, you're not getting anything back. She's not talking back to you. You know, she's not answering you. But this is this is what you should be doing, you know. And it was a newborn. So, I mean, mm -hmm. um, so those are the kinds of things that that. If you can learn to do them early in the child's life, it makes the rest of your life easier. And I don't know, there's a concept in our field called behavioral cusp. And if you if you start early and you and you're able to teach your children the behaviors that you like, you know, the productive, independent behaviors, well, those that opens up a world of opportunities that would never that would never happen without mm -hmm. those. Absolutely. And, and I think a lot of a lot of that ability to be able to create the independence, the strong relationships, the the feeling of uh, finding where who you are and being confident with that and being willing to expose yourself in, in pro-social ways. It's yes. all of that, I think, are 
derivatives of being able to establish those pro-social behaviors earlier in life of uh, attaining attention appropriately and seeking positive reinforcement from specific behaviors that have already won. So I, 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 for one, feel like, you know, everything that you've described in your book is going to be extremely beneficial for all parents. I don't think it's autism specific. It, your book might be, but <laughs> I don't think well, it's, it's, it's actually not. And, and I do think that that with some kids diagnosed with autism, it's more difficult. They don't they don't give you, you know, from birth or, 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 or at some point early on, they don't give you what typically developing kids give you. Um, and but from the moment that you realize that there's something different, that's the time to try to to try to build the, those behaviors. Mm-hmm. Um, because I know a lot of parents, I mean, a lot of the parents of autistic kids that I worked with, they felt guilty about having about having these kids. They felt remorse. They felt they they felt like they had done something wrong. They 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 you know they they were you know they and of course you know it's you have to break through that. Um, but in the process, they sort of treated their kids differently than they treated their their typically developing kids. Mm-hmm. Um, they were a little more you know, they treated them as if they were fragile. They were a little more, you know, indulgent. And a lot of, almost all the kids I worked with when I began working with kids, almost all of them had severe behavior problems. And at the time, that was part of the diagnosis of autism because mm. almost all of the kids had that. But that's not part of autism. Behavior problems are not limited to kids with autism. There are plenty of typically developing kids that have horrible behavior problems. So, um, and I think that, you know the kids that I worked with. You had to break through this, this, this whole, this, this. I don't know, this shield of behavior problems before you could even deal with the the problems of the autism. Yeah. Um, so if you can avoid, you know, building those kinds of those kinds of bad behaviors, um, then I think it becomes easier uh, to be more successful with a kid diagnosed with autism earlier in life. No, and I and I appreciate those sentiments. I think that that you're spot on with the fact that a lot of these behaviors they interfere with being able to establish some of the skills yes. that would really empower these children to be whoever they want to be and contribute in whatever way of life they they choose to contribute. But you have to get past the behaviors. So, yes. um, Doctor uh, Doctor Hank, when when are your next speaking engagements? I mean, I, I I've had the pleasure of being able to chat with you and learn a lot of this information. But I would imagine is that people would want to hear see you yeah. in person. I mean, what are the opportunities people have? Uh, well, I just I just gave a talk at the National Autism Conference at Penn State. Um, um, my talk was pre-recorded because I couldn't travel to uh, State College, Pennsylvania, from LA very easily. Um, uh, I'm giving a talk, uh, and that that talk is 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 kind of a high-level talk about verbal behavior. Um, but I think it's available on at, at the National Autism Conference website. I think you can go and 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 access it. Uh, I'm giving a talk uh, the first week in October at the Michigan Autism Conference uh, in Kalamazoo. Um, And actually at that conference, I'm going to talk about some of the things that you and I talked about today. Uh, I'm going to talk about a concept. I didn't come up with this concept. This was um, uh, from my mentor, Jack Michael, and um, Lee Meyerson was uh, one of his colleagues early on. It's a concept called disabilitation. and it's basically the concept that a lot of what we what we look at as disabilities are actually learned behavior. 
Um, and so if you can acknowledge that, then you can, you know, prevent them, uh, prevent those some of those disabilities or disabled behaviors. So those sound like just wonderful talks. And I, I do encourage, especially the, the clinical groups to to attend those and find ways to be able to attach to some of the information that you're sharing. Um, how about for families and 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 for clinicians alike? Where can they buy the, the book or where can they access the book that you've written? Well, uh, it's this little known it's this little known online store. It's called Amazon.com. I don't know if you've heard of it. Um, only briefly. <laughs> yes, yes. Uh, no, it's uh, it's available on Amazon.com. Um, and there uh, and I have a website for the book. Uh, I haven't updated it recently, but it still has some information on it. Uh, and that's called um, www.buildgoodbehavior.com. Um, and, um, and, and people and parents uh, or others are, are certainly free to contact me. Uh, they can find my email address on, on that website uh, or they can find it on, online. I'm all over the Internet. So um, anybody who has any questions or issues, uh, feel free to contact me, email me, and I'd be happy to respond. Um, yeah, I mean, even if, if a family walks away, even learning just to be slightly more intentional with the behaviors that they're hoping to be able to establish uh, for their child, yep. uh, or with a tip on how to be able to find those reinforceable moments. I, any of yep. that, I think, is it's worth the cost of the book. So <laughs> I, I suggest that they get out there and find it. And I appreciate your time, Dr. Schlinger, and, and being able to, to carve some time out to talk with us today about this topic, because I think that it permeates far more of the lives of all of our children. And, and if we can tackle these issues young, is that we're setting up our children for a lot of success. If we don't, then the learning of how to be able to establish these behaviors are going to affect their interactions and their self-esteem as life goes on. So I appreciate you coming on and chatting with us today. Well, I, I appreciate you inviting me and it's been uh, enjoyable talking with you. and. Um, I hope to see you in uh, Idaho or Montana, maybe. Thank you for listening to Autism Weekly. We hope you tune back in next week to learn more about autism in the real world. Autism Weekly is now found on all the major listening apps, including Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, Amazon Music, and more. Subscribe to be notified when we post a new podcast. Autism Weekly is produced by ABS Kids. ABS Kids is proud to provide diagnostic assessments and ABA therapy to children with developmental delays like autism spectrum disorder. You can learn more about ABS Kids and the Autism Weekly Podcast by visiting abskids.com. Thanks for tuning in. See you again next week.